I, I've not read all the opinions. Well, we'll get into this with Steve. I, I read enough to know that I think we covered it. Okay. But I'm very interested in what Steve has to say and in our reaction to, you know. And in other words, I think you could have predicted what they wrote without, you know, in advance. This It was not surprising. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, the the oral argument at Houston and the way that it came to focus on causation as a, as a, a frame around which to hang one's discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this phrase, by reason of, I mean, that features heavily in both. Yeah, it does. Um both the majority and the principal dissent, and Justice Sotomayor pointing out that there's, I'm not allowed to say anything. <laughs> are we going to Are we going to get into this now? Well, you just said it. <laughs> really, it kind of covered it, and so I was. You're, yeah, you're reacting to my bringing it up. Uh, <laughs> uh, we haven't seen each other in a while. I John. know. I was going to say welcome back. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm. I've now thought better of that and won't. <laughs> say that <laughs> you do look you look hale and healthy and oh really uh yeah yeah i was a- looks like you got a little sun somehow really yeah which is odd since you were in northern europe and iceland yes i yeah I, I was at a conference in maastricht in the netherlands on the border with belgium uh, the great association of law property and society annual conference alps pioneered by Robin Malloy at Syracuse and just continued by a number of really great people. It's a really great conference for property types mm. and people who are even just property-ish. How many years has it been going on? I think next year is going to be the 10th year. Oh, that's great. It's a little tough to figure because there were a couple of years there where it was like, is it Alps or not? You know what I mean? Like when it was first getting mm, right, going, right. it was kind of a an informal thing. And, and it's... Uh, Law, property, and society. So there's a law and society angle on it. Yeah. But property is sort of, there's property meat in a law and society sandwich. <laughs> or a meat substitute. I get, yeah, I'm a like vegetarian. Meat, like property tempeh. Yeah. I, got, I finally got to try that Impossible Burger. Oh, how was it? It's good. They have it here at the um, uh, at one of the local burger places. They do? Yeah. So I got to try it the other day. In fact, it was Ian Samuel's tweet. That he tried it and liked it. I was like, you know what? I should check again because, you know, I check every now and then to yeah. see if they've got it. Because I'm a big burger and fry fan, which is why this trip to the Netherlands and Belgium was, wow. That was, uh, that was, a, big, that was a big part of it for me. But Was to what? To not experience loads to... and loads of fries. Mm, mm. I'm a bit of a garbage gut. But not, uh, but not burgers because you don't eat meat. Yeah, but I, I like a veggie burger. And do they have a good? And, veggie? I, and, and I did eat meat up until I was like twenty. And I. But did they have a good veggie burger when you where you were? Mm, I, I did have one. I did have one. No, is this Impossible Burger the thing that I think uh, Ezra Klein had an episode of his podcast that talked to the people who make? Oh, really? That? I got to check that I think one out. So was this the right? Am I thinking of the right one? You don't. I don't know. know. You don't know. I, I, okay. I don't know for sure. But it is. It is an advance over other veggie burgers. Although I, I like plenty of veggie burgers, but not for their like. You know, um, their similarity to actual meat because you know I, I like a garden burger better than some of these, like a Boca burger. And this one tries to this. Imp- what is it called again? Impossible. The Impossible Burger. Impossible. This one tries to be some tries to approximate. I guess so. In I some w- in along some dimensions of I, taste and yeah. texture and stuff. I was there with a bunch of meat eating people the, uh, just the other day, and I, I think the report was it's good. It, it doesn't taste like a. Burger, like it, mi- it, it, it misses a little something, like a little irony flavor, is the way mm. someone put it to me, right? Because so, of the blood. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know for sure, but you know, I can't say. But but it did. 
it was it had you know what what's sometimes missing from a, like a veggie burger is that that little bit of umami. Yeah, and it's got that. Mm. I enjoyed it. I got a double. So you had one of these? Yeah, yeah. In Europe? No, 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 no. Here, here in here in Athens. Oh, okay. Yeah. So where in where in Athens is it available? Well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. What you? Why not? Eh. I, it's not my favorite burger place. <laughs> so I, I feel like I feel a little. Uh, I really love Clocked, the local burger place. Clocked. I, I like that. It's a good place. What is it called? Clocked. You've never been to Clocked? You don't know what Clocked is? What are you Do saying? Do you live here? What word are you saying? Clocked. C-L-O-C-K-E-D. I thought that's what you were saying, and I couldn't understand it because I thought, he can't possibly be saying the word clocked. You don't know clocked? I don't, no, I know, I don't know the first thing about it. I've never heard of it. Not once. Where is it? There are only, there, there are about 20 restaurants in Athens that matter at all, and, and clocked is one of them. Okay. Well, interesting. Um, it must be ranked 20th because <laughs> I've heard of 19, I'm sure. I, I Actually, I've it. heard of five. That, yeah. See? But, that matter. But um, Oh, wow. So, Ooh, fancy boy over there. So, <laughs> <laughs> where is Clocked? <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it doesn't meet your standards, Joe. You don't know that. It doesn't meet your standards. I'm surprised there are even five. Will you tell me where this place, where, which place? It's so, near the 40 watt. Okay. It's near it's it's downtown near the 40 watt. Oh, I think and I do know this. It's near place. the Korean uh there's like a Korean barbecue place which used to be something else, which used to be something else, which used to be something All before right, that. But who yeah, ser- yeah. who serves Are you going to tell me later cuz you don't want to say it on air? It's the Grindhouse. Hmm? It's the Grindhouse. Grindhouse. Yeah, the Grindhouse, which is on Lumpkin. This is a, this is another local edition. Yeah. This is another local edition, but yeah. But you can get on their website, the Impossible Burger website, and you can find out where they serve this thing. Oh, so wherever you live, if if they have it near They're you, you can They're not sponsoring. Make... I don't know why we're doing this so much, but... Because <laughs> we're talking about a particular yeah, we thing, are. And, we we are. Sh- and we're calling it by its name, yeah. which is a fairly conventional way to talk about something. <laughs> uh, and I have to say, uh, but to make it a little yeah. less local as a, as a podcast, we could say, if you wanted to know if this was available somewhere near you, there's a way to do that. I'm still not quite back. That's I I feel out of sync a little bit. Apparently, apparently so. <laughs> Do you want to hear about my trip? I would love to hear about your trip. So it, uh, you've already mentioned that you ate a particular my, kind of burger. Uh, well, that was not on the trip. That was back here in Athens. I oh, think yeah, we, this right. is all this confusion. This is going to be even more confusing for the listeners than it is for us to keep okay. up with. But you ate lots of fries. But on the trip, I went with my colleague Matt Hall, mm-hmm. our friend. Uh, did our he colleague. also eat a lot of fries? Yes, he did. We ate a lot of fries together. We presented a paper together, which is kind of fun. He's a Civ Pro guy, Matt, um, and has done a lot of work in standing and, and mootness and, you know, justiciability. And so we wrote a paper on kind of a curious bit of standing doctrine at the local level in land use cases mm. in Oregon in particular. But we have a more general idea of standing that kind of we think this brings out. So it was, it was really fun. We got a lot of great feedback. We presented it in a beautiful room um, with a number of other great people, including former guest Dave Fagundis. Oh, nice. I hope future guests, Steve Clowney, a bunch of other people, a bunch of other people who would all be great to have on the show. And okay. had a fun time going out with them and talking. You know that you know how conferences are. Like you talk about ideas, it spills over in other stuff, it comes back to ideas. Right. And and Matt and I then we went up to Belgium. We kind of got to see a Tom York concert in Brussels, which happened to be the same weekend. Cool. Amazing, right? It was an amazing happenstance. I was at the front row. Wow. Yeah, amazing. And and then we started talking about like Belgian beers and uh, and we got a new idea for a paper because it's this weird market uh, involving uh, Trappist monasteries and the way they market their beer. It's a really 
it could be really interesting. So we have a lot of cool stuff. Hmm. And then, and here's the little thing before we get Steve on the horn. If you're flying to Europe, okay, if you're lucky enough for whatever reason to be flying to Europe, check out Iceland Air. Okay. Before you get your, because in our case, it was cheaper than the usual airline one might use in this area to fly over there. All right. And with Iceland Air, a lot of commercials today. <laughs> a lot of buzz marketing. Uh, for no extra charge, you can you can book a twenty four hour to seven day layover in, in Iceland, and so you know Matt and I we didn't have seven days, but we had we had one day. Right. So we got a one day layover. Together, we rented a car and basically just started going. We we landed in Reykjavik. We started going. We went we 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 went on the south coast. I saw volcanic sand beaches, waterfalls, glaciers, glacial lagoons, icebergs. Wow! Uh, the midnight sun. You know, it's two thirty in the morning, and it's like uh, it feels a little bit like sunset, but not not dark. I was taking you know. Yeah, if you're quite far north at that full point, and pictures. it's the summer now. You saw so. the pictures on my Instagram, probably right. Do I what? Did you not see the pictures on my Instagram? No, I don't have Instagram. I oh. got rid of it at some point. I don't remember. Huh, interesting. Yeah, that's I where know. I posted the photos. I, but and it's I ama- sort of associated it, it so all with beautiful. Facebook. Hmm? Yeah, it's associated with Facebook. Yeah. Uh, Facebook bought it. but um, Bought it, yeah. Anyway. Uh, so so there we are. So so I'm back and, and, and we had a 24-hour, you know, back. mad road trip. This, this was like a wonderful, bromantic honeymoon. This is like, I, I love it. <laughs> I think it's so delightful. Well, we, we 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 had a good time. It sounds like it. We had a good time. We've got. A, I think we got a good paper. We got some ideas for the future. It's like you know, it's wonderful. I've invited Matt on the uh, to be on our show, and he has rebuffed me. Oh, boy. and I I imagine that would continue. Well, this is to his great shame. Uh, well, to our great loss. I won't I won't speak to his shame. That's just, <laughs> that's entirely a matter for him. But well, I, uh, he would be great. It's on certainly, the show. our loss. He would be great on the show. Uh, he would be, which is why I had invited him. And. I mean, he would come on if we but just. But as we, you know, I don't. I don't plead and beg. If we just had a show talking about the different kinds of fries in Belgium, and that could. Li- first of all, that would be delightful. <laughs> Second of all, it would be at least an hour. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, we have because so, those have some people thoughts. know how to do fries. They do. Um, I still did not have fries as good this trip, and I was in. I was in Brussels and in Ghent for you know for a brief period, as I did in Utrecht the year before. Mm. So I yeah you know I didn't go everywhere. One never does. Uh, we need to get Steve on the okay. line. All right, let me let me let me dial him up. Let's see what we can do. Is this uh, Stephen Vladek? It is. Um, this is Christian Turner. Hi, Christian. Um, are you recording on your end? I'm not. Do you want me to? Um, might it would sound better. Can okay. is it is it easy for you to do? Yeah, just, I, I just got to set up my microphone. Can you give me about 30 seconds? Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and yeah. do that. Okay, I'll be back in 30. Okay. Testing, testing. I'm back. And I can just send you, you know, a wave or a P3 file, whichever you prefer. Yeah, if you – do you have Dropbox? We have we have Box, which I've never quite understood how it's not a, a trademark or copyright violation of Dropbox, but whatever. Yeah, I mean, I mean we should start a company called Filebox. <laughs> and we'll... It would be a trademark issue if it were anything at all, not a copyright issue. Uh, no, no, I, I figured. I, I, here, here I am already getting into trouble with Joe, who knows more about most things than I do. Oh, but boy, is that wrong. It goes without saying <laughs> that it's a patent issue. <laughs> what? Well, you know, I mean, my, my, my next door neighbor here at UT is Melissa Wasserman, who does, ah. you know, r- routinely suggest to me that, that nothing matters other than patents. 
That is true because they are absolutely the most destructive force on the face of the <laughs> legal planet. So I don't think that's quite her position, but, oh. but yes. She doesn't agree that we should eliminate patent law? I mean, maybe maybe not because I think she likes her job. Uh, see, I think, they, I think there would still be plenty for patent people to do during the wind-down phase of patent law. <laughs> right? There's, there's a Teach lot of like cleaning law. up. Yeah. Yeah, so you're, what you're suggesting is that we could end it prospectively. Sure. And uh, leave the installed base. Right. Uh, thereby setting aside the question whether there would be some takings problem, for example, right. with canceling the installed base. Right. So you just let them expire uh, or fail to be maintained, as it were, to use right. the technical term. Um, and eventually there wouldn't be any anymore. And not to mention being involved in the whatever comes next in the Promote the Progress project of, you know, for, especially for drugs, whether it's administrative, auctions, whatever right. replaces it. There's still lots to do in studying how do we get people to kind of get off their butts and do – you know, sure. progressy things. Now, would it be, uh, I guess, uh, the conventional understanding is that you can have a change in remedy, even applied retroactively, that if it were sufficiently maybe minor, wouldn't raise any serious retroactivity problems. So somehow I knew this conversation was going to end with a discussion of Sveen versus Mellon. <laughs> Somehow. Uh, no, I was just hoping that we would not only um, suspend patents. I'm actually willing to engage in a moratorium. I'm, I think mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to debate the number of years it should last. Um, but um, I think that, you know, the really fun part would be things like, you know, let's substitute current civil litigation with trial by battle <laughs> or, or something of that nature. Have we not gotten there already? That's, we're getting very close to that, I think. Um, so that, you know, the with the current chairman or, or CEO of whatever entity we're talking about has to actually, you know, armor up, mm-hmm. get a broadsword, mm-hmm. and go into a pit uh, and uh, battle with their enemy now this, one-on-one. This, this appeals to me as, um, uh, you know, making, you know, as kind of a D&D type person, you know, at least back in the day. Like that actual that you might actually have like a bo- uh, like a like a battle with sword and shield against actual trolls. It's or or it's like trial by combat from Game of Thrones. Yes, yeah. yes. Oh, and I do think, but but I'm not I'm not too keen on the idea of people, you know, yeah, no, paying you, someone to, to yeah, fight nominating someone to take their place or something like that. I think you've got to be by virtue of being the chief executive or or the or the uh, corporate board chairman. We'll need to figure that out. But by virtue <laughs> of being that person, I think you're you're obliged. But if you're a non-practicing entity, I think you got to dress up in the troll makeup and the troll costume and all of that. Oh yeah, then, yeah, sure, sure. And then if you are, if you're, pra- you know, if you're, maybe if you're practicing, or if you are doing some good and you've been sued, you should like we should give you magical items, like you know, like a plus two bag of holding to carry your stuff around. There's a TV show proposal here, right? The Battle of the Primetime Network Patent Trolls, and we can do all nine. Like if we're going to do a, re- a season of this show, we do need to fi- like we need to fill out that all those nine characters. Like we need to identify oh, good folks for each one of those, and and we can do that. This is one of the all time worst ideas. In <laughs> uh, in a and we are in a season of bad ideas. Yeah, no. I, I mean, I, is it even the worst idea of the weekend? I mean, I, I feel like you know, pissing off Canada for no reason is pretty high up there on the list of all time pretty bad ideas. Yeah. Right. And Christian, the worst idea in the world would be having the person who hosted the show we just described for a decade become the president of the United States. That mm. would be the worst idea. <laughs> I, 
I, I, I, you know, Joe, I have no idea what you're talking about. We have, we have no <laughs> practical experience to suggest that reality TV show stars don't necessarily turn out well in the White House. Yeah. Yikes. I, this whole thing gets less and less funny. Every, yeah. I mean, it wasn't funny to begin with. I mean, no. our, the first show we did after the dude was elected was, you know, I think we were in tears. <laughs> you know, I think there were actual <laughs> sobs on, on the show, if I, if I remember. Uh, um, and, but, you know, there are, it is absurdity, and sometimes you do have to laugh at absurdity. Yeah. But real people are getting hurt. We knew that from the beginning. But it just gets like, ugh, you know. Did, did you guys see the story about, um, about the, the two civil service staffers who got fired and who it turned out that their job was basically to take all the papers yep. that the president was, you know, supposed to be preserving under the Presidential Records Act, and he would just tear them up, and they'd have to t- literally tape them back together? Yeah. I, I, I didn't read that they had been fired. I, I, I guess I did read they were former yeah, White House employees. I think, I think that's how I think that's how the story came out because once they were fired, they 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 told their their story. Right now, did you get from that? And I, I so I didn't read the full article. Did, did is he tearing these things up in a rage, or is it just his practice to tear things? up I think after it's he's just his thing. Like he finishes reading something, like tears it up, like the catharsis of right. you know, I've I've defeated the paper. He he's been told repeatedly, apparently, yeah, of that, that this is not appropriate. Things don't take <laughs> things don't take with that guy. Yeah, but but uh, you know, at least at least because he only tears things up after reading them, he tears up very few things. Indeed. Right. And a small right. number so the, of the environmental of damage is probably not that substantial. Probably very low. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just waiting for, as I tweeted yesterday, I'm just waiting for the argument that the Presidential Records Act is a violation of his Article II powers. Because, <sighs> you know, that, that seems to be the, the, the principled thing for folks who want to say that they're not defending Donald Trump to do these days is to come up with legal arguments that somehow suggest he can do the things that we think he shouldn't be able to do. Yeah, has a bunch of stuff, which is you're not the boss of me with a bunch of other words attached yep. to it. Exactly. Right. Uh, uh, see, so, see article two. Yeah. Uh, yeah what, how, what do we want to talk about with this? So we're going to talk about this uh, Supreme Court case that came out today. Houston. Hopefully I'll be shipping. Houston. Oh. <laughs> we're Steve, not doing that again. Steve, do you actually know how it's pronounced? I really I, I, don't I, know. I, I think it's Houston, but I don't know. Okay. So two, two out of three say Houston. so I will it shift would be, to It would be really, really difficult for us to go to the OIA, you know, recording of the oral argument, oh. pull it up and hear what the chief justice says. And would that even be authoritative? Um, well, it would at least be representative of what Husted's own Husted or Husted's <laughs> own lawyer um, right. told the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, so, counsel, uh, it has an opportunity to advise the court how to pronounce the party name. Yes, you're supposed to write out phonetically on the oral argument form exactly how the party represents name ought to be pronounced by the chief justice. Now, there's a famous story about this with, with, with Dalbert or Dobert, depending upon your you know, thing, which is that apparently um, the chief justice, you know, Chief Justice Franklin at the time, did not actually follow the council's instruction, which was that it was pronounced in the French as Dobert. Um, and so he called it Dalbert, and no one wanted to correct him. Hmm. And, the, and now there's a more recent uh, interesting story now because – According to, I think, the most recent episode, or maybe the, the, the one right before that, uh, most recent episode of First Mondays, um, the case many people refer to as Jardines, um, it, was, it was actually Hardinus. Yep. And, yep. That, um, and that lawyer would have advised the Chief Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, of that fact. But Chief Justice Roberts refers to it as Jardines. And there was, you know, the Yale, the Yale Law School Library and I think the Yale Law Journal did a project a few years ago where they actually went back through every Supreme Court decision ever and constructed a phonetic database of, you know, what what the closest they could get to an authoritative understanding of how names were pronounced. Wow. <laughs> I, so I worked at, when I was at the 
when I was at a law firm, I worked as uh, amicus on the Padilla case, the Jose mm. Padilla case, right? And Indeed. and everyone called it Padilla. And w- one thing that makes this somewhat interesting is, of course, that the whole problem was that he was being held incommunicado, right? And so it wasn't right, until so the lawyers so it was, actually it got was, in there. It was his mother, actually. It was Estella LeBron, his oh, mother, okay. who was telling everyone that it was pronounced Padilla. And But then it seems like a few years ago, I heard from other people who, who were calling it Padilla again. So I don't know... What's going on with that? Yeah, I, I don't know who is. I don't know who is technically the keeper of the canon with such things. But at mm-hmm. least when it was argued in the Supreme Court in you know two thousand April two thousand and four, it was Padilla because that's what his lawyers told right. Chief Justice Rehnquist it was supposed to be called. Yep. Hmm. <laughs> okay. So how's that for for a completely useless Supreme Court minutiae to kick off a Monday? Well, so I, I, I think we are pining for the days when this sort of thing, like you know, when we could talk about this and feel like. We're you not know, ignoring maybe, all yeah, the things that are happening. We're not ignoring the, the things that which are existential threats to the republic. Yeah, where's that rumbling coming from? So I don't know if Steve can hear it, but we are we are in the middle of a lightning storm here. Oh, is that what that uh, is? Oh yeah, there, there's a so there's a chance we could lose power, Steve. Um, I oh, don't think good. we I don't think we will, but um, wow. maybe it'll come through on the recording. But I, I just think <laughs> so long as the, we don't lose power, it just adds gravitas. Okay. Um, and, and, and and metaphorical, you know, support for everything we're saying. Absolutely. Yeah, it's sort of the King Lear staging here. Um, Indeed. That means Harlan, my dog, is is very unhappy at home right now. Well, Darcy's unhappy. I don't, I don't know where – she is she over there somewhere? She's right behind you. Oh, yeah. She's – yeah. So yeah. It, she's Harlan curled behind Harlan does not care me. for thunder. Oh, Darcy shakes and goes nuts. Yeah. Um, oh, so yeah. I guess one other question – would be uh, one other preliminary question would be if if um, Ohio Secretary of State Husted pronounces it Husted, but the lawyer told the Chief Justice it was Husted. <laughs> no one has said Husted. What did you say? Husted. Like like usted in Spanish. Oh, you're saying whosted instead of Husted. Right. It's it, it to me that's the only question. Like, is then, it like you're saying W H O instead of H U G H. I guess. N- never yeah. mind who's actually right about you know the motor voter law. <laughs> well, well, yeah, well of course we're, only, we're not going to get that right. We're going to yeah, we're going to get to that one. We're going to get yeah. to that one. I, actually, I think there's not much dispute over that. We all know what the right answer is, but we're going to get to that in a second. I think this is the more interesting <laughs> dispute about which reasonable minds could differ. <laughs> I just so, I mean, Joe, Joe's asking the right question, though, which is, you know, who who has the controlling voice here? Is it the actual party? Is it his or her lawyer on the paperwork they submit to the Supreme Court? Or is it the chief justice who presumably is the one who's, you know, whatever framing of it is what goes into the recordings for posterity? There's it's all about it's all about institutional assignment in the end. Isn't Seriously. It, Steve? Mm, right. And, and Steve lives in a town where one of the most prominent streets is Guadalupe Street. Oh, my gosh. So there's a whole sort of um, indoctrination you get when you move to Austin about how things are pronounced here. So there's Guadalupe. And if you say Guadalupe, you're looked at like you're a crazy foreigner. Right. Um, There's a big street by the law school that's pronounced that that's spelled manor and pronounced manor. Um, mm. As if you are a person from Maine. Um, right. No, the, no, that, the, that's pronounced Maina. <laughs> also, f- fair enough. Um, but there's also, my favorite is there's a street that's spelled Manchaka, but that's pronounced Manchak. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Bobby and I, Bobby Chesney and I once got into a fight about this on the National Law podcast where he was saying, well, hey, you're a New Yorker. You know, what, what do you have to say about Houston? And I said, excuse me, sir, but that is not named after Sam Houston. It's named after the Dutch word. 
right? For anyway, sorry. Uh, you Which guys are going to be all the Dutch word for house these important things. <laughs> <laughs> There's a street in Chicago uh, spelled D E V O N. Uh, the people in Chicago pronounce it Devon, mm-hmm. not Devon. Yes. Um, I once was lost for a good 10 or 15 minutes looking for the street spelled D-I-V-A-N. Um, Devon. Uh, Devon, right, because that's how it's pronounced. Um, mm. And I was, you know, in my car and near De- near Devon and thinking, well, that's not it. Where's Devon? I, it is shocking to me that you that your mind was so normative about pronunciations that it was to your own detriment. Yeah, and by shocking, you meant not the least bit surprising. <laughs> not the least bit surprising. <laughs> and, the, you know, the, now the street uh, downtown in Chicago or near downtown, um, I think the neighborhood is technically called near north, as a matter of fact, um, which people in Chicago pronounce Gothi. Uh, and we would all associate with the famous German author Goethe. Um, you know, everyone knows what's going on there. Like you see it and you know. It, but this Devon Devon thing was very tricky. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the problem the problem for me with the Houston thing in New York is it's just it betrays a lack of understanding of history. Like, right. like no, it's named after the Dutch. Well, why is it named after the Dutch? <laughs> <laughs> right. What do they have to do with this? Yeah, what, what do they know about New York? Steve, if the Dutch had anything to do with it, it would have been called New Amsterdam, not New York. Mm. Oh. Go figure. <laughs> you know what? Um, I never thought about it that way. As, yeah. a, as, a, native, as a native New Yorker, it never occurred to never me. Never occurred to you. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm, that's what I do, Steve. I solve problems for people. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we want to – do we want to talk about this case on the – there's also the other – what uh, with the name of which I've already – is it Slovin? Slovin. Slovin? No, Sveen, just S-V-E-E-N. Sveen. Oh, there's no L in there. Sveen against uh, Melon. Sveen or against Melon. Um, See, I should have. This is this shows you how much I prepared to come on the podcast with you guys today. Is you know, I, I really could easily have gone back and spent three minutes listening to the first thirty seconds of each of these oral arguments to <laughs> yeah. to actually get this right. And, so could we, and we didn't. Um, Instead, I worked on my on my pending cert petition. So there you go. Oh wow! See, you're back at it, aren't you? You got you got the you got, you got the um what you got the itch now, don't you? Well, you know, there's an, there's some some of it some of it's an itch, Christian, and some of it's just like a you know here's a case where I'm like the last person howling at the moon, and so if the Supreme <laughs> Court really is going to kill something, I might as well be the one who helps them do it. Okay. Mm. And but, we haven't uh, we haven't uh, received. No, still the court's no decision in Dalmazi. So, which, by the way, I feel very good about the pronunciation of that case. Mm, right, right, right. It's of course Dalmazi. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. The, the, the listeners, are, they, all of this is just this is just like when you again, it's like shaking off your shoes. It's like shaking a right. scorpion out of your boots or something like that. We've shaken loose the casual listeners at this point. Now, who do we think Indeed. is the author, uh, Steve, of Dalmazi? What's your speculation at this point? Is it Justice so, Kagan? Let, let, let me say. Let me interject. Dalmazi, we had an earlier two earlier episodes with Steve who argued <laughs> Dalmazi uh, in the Supreme Court this term. We're, we're, um, we're, we're waiting on that. It involves some a bunch of issues. Yeah, a bunch Wait, of issues. A Let's whole bunch of issues, that. which is one of the problems that the court was – it didn't seem like the court even was aware of all the issues involved mm. at the time. That, uh, well, uh, so, so this actually – so this, this leads me to my only, my only sort of – the only, th- I think, interesting thing I have to say about Dalmazi today, which is I, I am increasing I, – I thought that maybe there was about a 1 percent chance a month ago of this. I now think there's about a 10 or 15 percent chance that the court in Dalmazi is going to decide – the big sort of nerdy appellate jurisdiction question, and then set the rest of the case for re-argument. Um, oh, wow. you know, I, I still don't think that's the most likely outcome, but I think it's increasingly a possibility. 
Um, so just you mean because, they're going to decide you know, this, this Marbury question? Yeah, they'll decide the Marbury question. They'll say, yes, we can hear appeals directly from CAF. And then they'll say, the rest of this case is messy. Let's hear it again in October, which will drive everybody crazy for another couple months. But c'est la vie. Um, yeah. Anyway, but so we know it's either at this point um, Justice Breyer or Justice Kagan who has the majority opinion because there were exactly nine cases argued in the January sitting. Um, and we've had seven opinions from the other seven justices. So oh. assuming, you know, even opinion assignments. Um, we're down to Breyer and Kagan for Dalmazi and the absolute page turner that is Florida versus Georgia. <laughs> A water law case, presumably. Indeed. Yeah, that you really can't uh, infer much about the outcome from that assignment. No, I mean, I, I have said all along, perhaps more publicly than I ought to have, that that I always thought our best chance was if we got you know, Justice Kagan or the chief, because I think they would be the two who would most enjoy the ridiculously layered levels of complexity in this case and have the most fun, you know, un, uh, uh, demystifying and decomplexifying these issues. But, yep. um, you know, that doesn't mean we'll win. And it doesn't mean it's Kagan and not Breyer. Right. Um, the, the weird thing about Florida versus Georgia, I mean, um, Adam Feldman, you know, who is Mr. Empirical SCOTUS, um, Adam has now, I think, figured out that Florida versus Georgia is now the original jurisdiction case that has taken the longest from argument to decision in like the last 25 years. And it's not at all clear why. So well, mysteries but it, abound. But it definitely means it's Breyer. Oh, <laughs> is that right? Well, it seems that way to me. I mean, I, the, my recollection of the argument in that case um, is that there were a lot of what were essentially a lot of fascinating administrative law questions in it yeah. uh, about EPA work that had gone on and or Army Corps work that had gone on in a variety of ways and a bunch of hydrological studies and da 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 and he was really into it this is my recollection okay which I is did, very I don't think I which is very fuzzy case. but Joe I think that's right I, it's not so so I want to be clear I don't think the case is that I, I completely understand and see what the you know that the case is complicated it just tends not to be the kind of case that would provoke a whole lot of back and forth in the majority and dissenting opinions that would that would you know end up having it take this long. Hmm. Yeah, but this has been. I mean, as many people have noted, this term has really been historically yeah. slow, 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 um, slow, slow, and um, to, to the point that we've got twenty one opinions left, and even with the extra day they've now added this Thursday, you know, only three technically scheduled decision days left, although I'm sure there'll be yeah, two Yeah, we were talking more. about that with you off, I, I, maybe online and offline, Steve, when you were out here in in, uh, in Athens. And But it seems like between then and now, I saw a few people post about how maybe, you know, if you, if you line it up with graphs of prior years, that maybe it's not so, that there have been years like this before, you know, in, in, in recent memory, so it's maybe not so unusual. What's, right, what's the truth about this? It's it's in between, Christian. I mean, so so there are there are previous terms where the absolute number of opinions outstanding was not that far away from where we've been at the big marker dates the last couple of weeks. Um, the difference is that as a percentage of the court's overall docket, this term the numbers are much higher. So yeah, you know, because, because they were hearing more cases earlier. Right. So if they had 25 cases left to decide in June in a year where they heard 85 cases, that's different from 25 when they only have heard 62. Um, and actually with the, with the, you know, the one decision today that no one's going to pay any attention to, the, the affirmance by an equally divided court in Washington versus United States, we're actually now going to set a record 
um, for fewest decisions in argued cases, or fewest opinions in argued cases in the modern court. So, I, you know, I think it's, it's all a question of what your denominator is. Um, and if your denominator is the total number of cases the court's deciding, I actually think that the graphs don't match and that we're way, way behind compared to recent years. And that's true to an even greater extent if you look ahead to the October 2018 term, where the court is way behind granting cases to yep. your next term. Yep. Do you, Steve, do you? Yeah, I, I, this is spec. Uh, let's do a little bit of speculation. Let's. A little bit of rank speculation. Do you suspect that there's something very weird, like in, in a? And these probably are not separable within the Supreme Court, I guess. It, it, like politically, legally, socially, in the building, um, because of a combination of Kennedy's desire for retirement, uh, relatively, you know, it, it, he's not didn't want to stay on forever, I assume, but and Trump. I mean, is there some, is there a weird, do you think there's a weird vibe? Like, do you know, Joe, you're looking at me like squinting. I don't, do you know what I mean? I, I just wonder if something is different because of either Gorsuch's arrival, the Garland thing, the, the politicization of the court, the, the, the uh, kind of a different social apprehension of the stakes because of the era of Trump. And I have no idea how that translates into the justices talking to one another. They probably feel very differently about Kennedy. Can I add down. something yeah. to your question? Does this make sense? It makes sense as a question. Um, and I think one thing that, that makes your question even more concrete is that they have before them a case that actually turns on some of these very things. And it's the travel ban case. Yeah. Which, is, which, right. ha- no, no, which has right. these inflections woven directly into it. And the election cases in a different way. Right. I mean, well, the, so, so I mean, so Christian, so that's why, at least from my perspective, I, I think it's still too early to tell. I mean, I think we're going to we're going to learn a lot, I think, in the next month about what might have been going on. You know, what's interesting to me looking at the term so far is how much some of the big messes have actually kind of fizzled out. Um, so, you know, I, I thought that right. the HHS abortion case was going to be a huge mess. I thought you were going to get, you know, a couple of justices um, really going after the Solicitor General for the position that he was taking and a couple of justices firing back and going after the ACLU. And instead, it ended with a, you know, perfectly narrow, short, per curiam, um, you know, GVR grant vacated and remand because the case was moot order. Um, yeah, the, 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 these were the cases, for people who don't know, where, where there was a, a minor person held in immigration um, were they in actual immigration detention, Steve? So they were in immigration they... detention, but 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 because they were a minor, that means they were technically in the custody of the Office of Refugee Resettlement under the okay. Department of Health and Human Services. And so they uh, and and these minors had become uh, pregnant, presumably on on the way to the United States, and and desired an abortion. This particular minor desired an abortion. Yep. HHS didn't want to, her to have it, and a mess ensued. Um, and a, a mess into so I mean the the question was whether she had a you know whether HHS could basically had to had to help facilitate her access to an abortion that at least at the time she was seeking that she was legally entitled to pursue um, and the district court said yes um, there was a panel decision by the DC Circuit that sort of said we're not really sure but the issue isn't really ripe yet. The D.C. Circuit went on bonk to say, no, yes, she can have her abortion. And then before the case could be appealed to the Supreme Court, you know, the ACLU went ahead under what are factually contested circumstances, had the abortion performed. And you had this extraordinary petition from the Solicitor General that really sought nothing other than this Munsingware vacateur, please vacate the lower court decision since the case is now moot. You don't usually get a petition asking for that. And and suggesting that the opposing counsel acted improperly. Right, and well, indeed asking the court, 
asking the court to sanction, you know, the ACLU's lawyers, which is, so, you know, it's extraordinary enough for the SG to suggest that the Supreme Court should sanction opposing counsel. It's especially extraordinary for the SG to ask the Supreme Court to sanction opposing counsel for conduct that didn't happen in the Supreme Court. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had that that case is not alone. I mean, there are other examples of this. I mean, Masterpiece Cake Masterpiece, Shop went out I was gonna say, on yeah. super, super narrow grounds. You know, I, I have a sense that, like, it's possible that when this term is over, we're going to look back and say, wow, they really ducked a lot of the nastier, messier stuff. And maybe, like, they, 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 they tried really hard to show that they're the one institution right now that actually is above politics. But, you know, the problem with that is you look at a decision like whatever we're calling Houston, um, yeah. and, you know, you look at a, a decision like Epic, and you look at what's almost certainly the forthcoming decision about public sector unions in the Janus case, and, you know, that's just the the court being the court. So, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think I, Janus prob- is going to come out the way that it's going to come out. I mean, we know how that's yeah. going to come out, right? And, yeah. and uh, tr- I could see dodging in the Trump travel ban case, but I don't see how they're going to avoid... Um, uh, a very, I, I don't see how they're going to avoid a very divisive issue in the um, in the redistricting cases. That's so those the, the Texas case. I mean, so 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 let me take one shot at how this court at how, at how this term could totally fizzle. Um, um, right. The so the way this term would fizzle is if the court sort of hyper narrow statutory holding on the travel ban. Um, right. It'll provoke a dissent, but it will avoid saying anything nasty about what the president said in his motive. Just a pure, you know, parts of the travel ban really don't seem consistent with 1152 and 1182, and we're done. Um, then on the on the redistricting cases, imagine if they say in Gill, that's the Wisconsin case, no standing. And if they say in Benesek, the Maryland case, you know— you're here too early. This is a preliminary injunction. The three-judge district court denied the preliminary injunction. We're not ready for this yet. And they sort of send the case back, right? They could, I mean, it, it, would, it would require a fair amount of relatively disingenuous opinion writing, but it could be done. <laughs> well, the standing in, 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 in the Gill against Whitford case, that was actually my Supreme Court discussion group. I brought that up. I was shot down by Lori Ringham, who was visiting that time, who, ah. who, was, who convinced me there would be, who was trying to convince me there would be no standing bar um or the except the ch- except the, except that the chief has it right i mean so yeah. so you know if you look at the opinion assignments from october the most likely candidate for the majority assignment in gill is the chief because he's the only one who hasn't written it's the only case that's outstanding but i don't see um, how, i don't see the the maryland one seems more difficult to me steve yes. can you explain yes. what you mean because uh, I, I so i can totally see the standing argument in whitford we're not i think we've done a show about whitford way back when did we joe i don't remember i don't remember either but so let's put that to one side but there's an issue about whether you know anyone has the concrete interest to raise this the particular issue at least there. on a statewide basis exactly so and it's uh, very yeah. easy to imagine the chief justice relishing writing such an opinion and, uh, and the whole problem in these cases let me just tee this up as well right is that um bringing one of these challenges to redistricting involves going to a three judge panel initially yep. and then there is a non-discretionary appeal to the supreme court Right. I mean, the Supreme right, Court which means, can't just, which means the Supreme Court, in theory, has to hear the appeal. Although there's which, no requirement that they write an opinion. That's true, but but what it means is that res, that what they're concerned about is that ba- they're basically going to be responsible for every map. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's so the it problem. tends to generate a jurisprudence of avoidance. Absolutely. Um, precisely so that. So how does that happen in Maryland, Steve? So in Maryland, the way it worked was the three judge district court um, basically denied the motion for a preliminary injunction um, by basically adopting a series of legal tests that you know are debatable and probably wrong. But it's entirely possible that you could write a nose holding opinion 
that says, <laughs> at this preliminary stage, we think the more appropriate thing to do is to allow the litigation to proceed in the district court to see if the plaintiffs can actually satisfy the standards that the district court imposed once you get to, like, you know, summary judgment um, before appeal. And I, listen, it would be uh, it would be a completely disingenuous dodge, but I could yeah. just, you know, it's... Well, and, it does, um, and it doesn't like permanent. You know, the, the issue is going to come up, right? I mean, it's, no, no. It, and, so, yeah. and so the question, right? So the question is, why? You know, what would explain all of this can kicking? I mean, so masterpiece cake shop is a good example of this. Right. You know, everyone I think, except the right wing media, understands that it's a narrow decision. The million dollar question is whether there are five votes to go further. That's like the Arlene Flowers case that the court didn't act on today, which basically raises almost the same question as Masterpiece Cake Shop, but without the case-specific animus on which the majority relied. Um, So, you know, I I, I totally understand why it wouldn't make sense for the court to be in hyper-avoidance mode, but there's just a feel from some of these dispositions that, you know, there's this mindset among at least some of the justices that the best thing they can do right now is look like they're, you know, at least as much as possible, not, you know, Trumpified and not politicized. Now, that's not going to work in every case. Look, for example, at Husted and Epic and almost certainly Janus. But in cases where there's any kind of off-ramp, I think we've been seeing the justices reaching for the off-ramps. And, you know, to be selfish for a second, that's part of why I think the re-argument specter in Dalmazi is not crazy. Hmm. And it, uh, I suppose it also helps explain the slow grant rate for next year because yep. sort of the um, the best way to avoid writing a broad decision is not to take the case at all. That, that's uh, right. And I, su- I suppose the Maryland case, I mean, uh, the uh, a wag might ask uh, upon seeing the opinion you described, the, the notional one you described, Steve, would be, well, if – I mean, you you could see all that coming. Like you, you didn't need to grant review to know that it was a, at the PI stage and therefore, you know, really there should be more proceedings at the district court level. You know, come on. You, the, you're, uh, that is a sense in which you might, you might actually with some justification call it disingenuous when the rationale is a rationale that would have – that probably was spelled out in, in, the, in the brief in opposition – yeah, but and, Joe, remember, there's no, remember, there's no, in the, I mean, Christian's right here. Oh, that's the right. Posture, there's no cert grant. Right. Oh, 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 I think oh, the oh, post- let Steve talk because he's saying I'm right. Go ahead. Go ahead, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I mean, I think, I think, I, you know, at, at the risk of, at the risk of. But isn't of there a noting my, jurisdiction? My, is there not even a noting jurisdiction? Thing? No, there is. There is. But the problem is, is that at least in Benisek, there's no real jurisdictional objection, right? I mean, Gil, you've this got the, the question case. of standing. Yeah. Um, right. Benisek's the Maryland case. And so, you know, the court didn't have much of a choice but to note probable jurisdiction and mm. then kick it all to the merits. Um, you know, in Benisek, they did. And in fact, they didn't actually say they noted probable jurisdiction. They said jurisdiction deferred, which was mm. their way of, I think, holding off on, you know, holding out the prospect of dumping Gil on standing, Hmm. So, so listen. I mean, hmm. in 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 three weeks' time, you know, this could be the the worst series of predictions in the history of the world. It's just, right. you know, so far this term, this feels like a court that is desperately trying to avoid looking like every other institution in American politics right now, um, and, and, and not always succeeding. Well, finish then, finish the thought. Why why is it that just having cases, deciding them? writing decisions, why would that make them look like every other institution? Because what we're suggesting, I suppose, uh, is there would be a lot of 5-4 
decisions where the votes lined up with the party of the appointing president. I, I and, think it's worse than that, Joe. I think current, it's not just five. I think it's not just five four. I think it's five fours with a lot of vitriol. So right. you know, to go back to the HHS immigration abortion case again. I mean, it took a long time for the court to hand down a pretty toothless five page procurium. It wouldn't surprise me at all if on the road to that result there were dueling concurrences where some justices accused the Solicitor General of bad faith and other justices accused the ACLU lawyers and perhaps their colleagues of bad faith. And, you know, that that's the kind of stuff that I think Chief Justice Roberts, first and foremost, is desperate to avoid getting out into the public. And So it's not know, just would, a 5-4 vote, it's a food fight. It's a food fight. And I think, and, you know, just to, to go back to the, the horrible meme from last week, you know, you can't look at a vote and tell how narrow or broad a Supreme Court case is, you also can't look at a vote and have any idea of whether this is just, you know, a classical example of the justices lining up in their camps on a question that neatly divides them into their camps, or if before we got to this end result, there was a lot, you know, of nastier stuff behind this. I mean, Joan Biskupic tells this story about um, Fisher versus University of Texas, the race-based affirmative action case, that the first time Fisher was arguing in the Supreme Court— there was originally a majority to overrule Grutter, the 2003 Michigan case where the court had basically allowed some you know, race-based affirmative action policies to still go forward, um, only to provoke an incredibly acerbic and personal dissent from Justice Sotomayor. And you know, mm-hmm. that sort of pro- prompted the justices to try to find consensus and narrow ground. And where we ended up in Fisher 1 was a very short, very strange, very narrow remand to the Fifth Circuit that right. took them the entire term to write. So, you know, I, I think it's just we, ha- we have to be careful not to assume that what we see in the U.S. reports is reflective of the divisiveness behind the scenes, um, but that, you know, the court may be very aware of wanting to avoid the food fight spilling out into the public right now. It's just in the in the redistricting cases, so it, it's it's the it's the outcome and issue itself, which could be so evulsive, yep. right? And yep. so it's not a matter of like people having bitterly different ideas about abstract rules that they think map on to particular social outcomes. And then it's all about like, is there a way we can get together on an acceptable set of rules, you know, acceptable statement of a majority rule and an acceptable dissent. Whereas, you know, with redistricting, it's, there are two, uh, you know, really bad ways to go and and doesn't seem like any other way ultimately you can dodge it this year as you point out but like ultimately you're either going to have the supreme court reviewing a bunch of maps or you're going to have the specter of of kind of big data legislator legislators choosing their own voters and it doesn't seem like there's a you know I mean, you know maybe the justices are a lot smarter than than we are and can and can figure out some kind of acceptable rule in between i, I guess the most acceptable rule actually would be to change the statute and give the supreme court cert um yep over these cases. But other yeah, than I mean, that, I, think, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think it would be fascinating to have a conversation about, I mean, and, and this I think actually dovetails with the nationwide injunction conversation. Right. yeah, yeah. Um, about, you know, whether we ought to have some kind of serious conversation about the circumstances in which we're still using three-judge district courts. Um, and not just what that means for the trial, but also what that means for the appeal. Because um, right. also in the in the less noticed redistricting case, the court's hearing this term, um, Abbott, this is the Texas case, mm-hmm. the court heard on the second to last day of the term. The, the One of the real questions the court is confronting in that case is a nasty question about its appellate jurisdiction from a three-judge district court. Because um, 28 U.S.C. Section 1253, the statute that confers 
appellate jurisdiction on the Supreme Court from the three judicial courts, um, it's actually quite specific, only from injunctions issued by three-judge district courts up or down and not from you know other rulings by those courts. So, so it's only if they it, redraw the map? Um, or do something else coercive or refuse to do something else coercive. And so there's a whole fight in the Abbott case about whether that's in fact what the district court did. You know, the, the plaintiffs who are the respondents in Abbott – um, are basically trying to get the court to dump the case on the ground that it doesn't have appellate jurisdiction because what the three judges of court did was not actually coercive of the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think there's for folks who actually care about having like long term reform conversations. Yeah, I would have a real chat about Section 1253 and about what three judges district courts are and are not doing today. Um, you know, I'd have a chat about why the Supreme Court is still having an April argument calendar when it's having this much trouble getting all of its work done by June. I mean, I think there are, you know, there are broader, I think, non-partisan, non-substantive problems that this term has raised that, you know, I think have been percolating for a while, but I think really ought to be the subject of at least some attention no matter what the court actually says in these cases in the next couple of weeks. Well, I have two thoughts about that. One I want to get back to in, in, in a second about the argument in, I think it was Maryland. But but the other, the broader point is, I think also included in that broader conversation is how we choose Supreme Court justices and what their, uh, and what the Supreme Court does, you know, how it hears mm-hmm. cases. Because that, mm-hmm. I, I think you're saying it's like, you know, the things this term has brought up, but it's, it's this political moment, right, where the, the politicization of the Supreme Court, which, you know, I think has always been political and I think it's appropriately political in many ways. But, you know, it just it, it cannot drive politics kind of how it has come to drive it. And uh, it's, you know, what Mitch McConnell did was unacceptable. And you talk to some conservatives on Twitter and they'll tell you that the Democrats did similar things and there's this back and forth. I don't believe it, but whatever. You know, it's like we, we, it's got to stop. Right. It, it, it's got to stop. And and so I think we're at a moment where a lot of of assumptions um, that we haven't re-examined before, uh, we haven't examined uh, recently, have to be re-examined um, as a kind of broader. Let's get you know maybe 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 what we need is a slogan: getting democracy back on track, right? <laughs> like how are we you know living together again? How are we going to do this, right? How are we going to live say together? When you it's got to discre- stop, what do you what do you mean to what do you mean to invoke there? What's the idea there? You say it's got to stop. Uh, I would what, say meaning what the I would say wanting to win too badly, right? And and this like returning every perceived slight with a, you know, with with a harder punch. Um, so that that's certainly the in terms of appointments, right? Okay. Um, but also, you know, litigation strategy. Um, the I, I don't I, I don't want to I don't want to get into all this. Sorry, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But but I I, I have the sense that the politics of the court are being expressed in ways that don't translate to kind of public politics in a very healthy way right now. Abortion is part of it, but there were, that's always been there, but there are other issues as well. Sorry, Steve. What, yeah. No, no. I mean, I, was, I, I have to confess, I was really taken aback last week. I mean, you guys know, you know, I, I, I spend some of my time helping CNN with their Supreme Court coverage. Um, and the blowback last week to the fact that just about every major media outlet described Masterpiece Cake Shop as a narrow decision. Um, you know, it's, it's this not, this was Donald I mean, Trump Christian, Jr., wasn't it? it? But it was, it was, it was Donald Trump Jr., it was James Woods, and it was the entire, you know, sort of Trumpian right wing Twitter, Twitter land, Twitter sphere. Right. Um, and, and so I think it's, it's a political moment, Christian, in a different sense 
than what I think we've always understood as previous. I mean, listen, yes. Bush versus Gore was the quintessential, you know, moment where everyone's like, oh, the Supreme Court's just a political institution. Right. Um, you know, it, it's almost like the, the the worst part of politics circa 2018 is now starting to be applied to the court and the people right. who I think are the most scared of that are the justices. And and frankly, yeah. and, and, and if there's one reason why Anthony Kennedy is not going to retire in the next three weeks, I think that's it. Right. That that at this is at this particular moment, he just won't he'll, he'll just conclude that he can't. Well, this was kind um, of my question at the beginning. Right. Is that is that is this kind of conversation going on in the building like you know, it, that this broader conversation about what, what, I mean, Joe, I mean, the, the, the court is never that overt. I mean, I, I can't imagine that, like, they're sitting down around the table and talking about this. Um, Nor can I. I, I and, and none of us clerk there, is, if I recall correctly. But um, at, at, so, you know, who knows how this year would compare to some prior year. But, uh, you know, the, the it, what's so bizarre about all of this, of course, is that um, – there are moments when individuals can do important things that would advance in one direction or another uh, the the a sort of a, a, a healthier or or a more diseased state of affairs. Um, anyone offered the the a Garland seat could have said no. Uh, the person who was offered it who got confirmed obviously didn't say no. Um, I think should have said no. Uh, oh, well, I agree. Um, that's what I'm. That's yeah. what I've just stated. Um, <laughs> in, in the sense that he he could have right. Yeah. Um, should have. I guess it's more uh, m- more up to him in a way, right? But but he certainly could have. He had the opportunity. Um, I would I would hope that he did. Um, so when you say there's I, a bunch I, I, of people I mean, in that right, building yeah. who don't who who don't want there to be a certain kind of politics, and maybe it's Steve who said that. Well, I th- I think there might be eight. I, I, don't them too, I don't want to be too strong about that. I don't know that the, there are nine of them. I don't want to be too strong with the should have. So let me just back off a little bit. It's a complicated issue. We can talk about it more. But 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 also, I mean, listen. I mean, without if, if stepping back for a second, I mean, I think the you know I, I have a ton of respect for John Roberts, even when I vehemently disagree with him, which is almost every day. Yeah. Me um, too. Yeah. And 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 I think that the one place where I actually have abundant faith in him is that even if he and I have different understandings of how to do it. He's actually thinking about the court's institutional credibility. Um, you know, and I, and I don't know how you look at, for example, NFIB and King versus Burwell, um, you know, without at least that being a heavy thumb on Absolutely. the scale. What do you, what do you think so, he would have done with Bush against Gore, Steve? Or, or is part of what he's doing now with those cases uh, a reflection on uh, you know, Bush against Gore? I, I think Bush versus, Gore, Bush versus Gore might be the Supreme Court's one free bite. Right. I mean, you know, yeah. the, there's the old principle of tort law that every dog gets one free bite. And and I think that it's that there's a lot less maneuvering room for the court in cases that are so nakedly and nationally political today than was true in, you know, December of 2000, partly because of Bush versus Gore. That, you know, Bush versus Gore was, I think, a generation shaping decision in that respect. So um, if anything, I think Bush versus Gore is probably part of why the chief is especially sensitive. And, you know, this is what this is why all my friends think I'm crazy. I, I think the most likely fifth vote to strike down the travel ban isn't Kennedy. I think it's the chief. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I could be wrong in, in two weeks and that's fine. But I think that's part of why this term has been a mess. You know, it's not Gorsuch isn't isn't none of it. I mean, I think, you know, he he's writing opinions that we haven't seen from a justice in in a long time. And, you know, by all accounts, he's in the middle for better or for worse of 
fights that the justices haven't necessarily gotten into a lot lately. So be it. But I think there's more going on. I think part of what's going on is, you know, the court as an institution and the chief as an individual really trying to figure out how to be the Supreme Court without sort of stooping to the level of American politics 2018. Yeah, I think that one free bite idea is I, I, I can't imagine Trump against Gillibrand or Trump against Biden, you know, in 2020. I think, you know, the consequences of the Supreme Court deciding an election in, in, with these stakes is it's unimaginable. I mean, I think it would be, you know, um, I, I don't think it would go down um, as easily. Well, and as, just to um, be it a little more concrete, uh, in the sense that we, this is already in the rearview mirror, um, it, if you look at um, the last five presidential elections – Democrats have won the popular vote in four of them. Yes. Right. And Republicans have won three of them. Yep. Electoral college in electoral college terms. Right. So, which is to say that the only person in those last, five elections. It's actually, it's actually the last six. Democrats have won five. The popular vote in five of the last six. Ah. Um, so if you, if you look at the only person in this group who won a clear majority of the popular vote and the electoral college vote twice yeah, uh, is the same president who was deprived of the Garland nomination. Yeah. Uh, so Wait, so yeah. there's a, a sense in which this is already so rotten through and through. He was deprived. I, I, this, is, I, this is when I... By the way, I can't, I can't do math. It's actually six of the last seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was going to be an odd number, but... Um, no, because it's, it's right. George Bush in 2004 is the only Republican yeah. president who's won the national popular vote in a presidential election since 1988. Yeah. I, I was just going to so, say... So there's that, something that, deeply wrong just in, in terms of that. There's something deeply wrong. But you add wrong. to that the, the McConnell power grab. This is why we need to have another... I think we've got to do the, the nomination thing again, because, of course, it, you're absolutely right. You know that I agree about that, and you know that I feel very deeply about what McConnell did. But... Um, you know, there's like it's no there's there's no kind of moral fabric of the universe which dictated that Scalia had to die that year rather than the year later. No, of right? not. So there's a lot of you know, and the yeah. institutional reforms of you know setting up a system where basically every other year there will be a new right. Supreme Court seat because there are 18 year terms and they rotate through, and there are more and justices, sort of, and maybe they sit in panels, and there are all kinds of things that you right, can do. And to and amp but these down institutional the watch, you know, reform ideas have been around for a while, and yeah. one of the things they do is they lower the temperature by regularizing Absolutely. the process. Right. Um, so those are all. I think we've talked about them before. They're worthy of talking about them again in more detail. Um, but, 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 but I think I think we're conflating two different conversations, though. I mean, I think we're that's what we a, do around here, Steve. Well, that's fine. Um, <laughs> but, but at the risk of at the risk of trying to keep separate, separate. I mean, there's a long term yeah. conversation about the you know ways of further depoliticizing the court and the nominations process, and you know rethinking sort of how the Supreme Court does its job so that it's not so sort of baked in that everything it does is going to be perceived as political. Mm-hmm. And there's the short-term conversation about the Supreme Court's role at this particular moment um, in, in our constitutional and political history. And, you know, there, I mean, Christian, again, I, I think you're right. The, the only, the, you know, because they ducked the immigration abortion case, which I think was the only other real candidate, the, big ca- the only case this term that squarely presents that is the travel ban. Um, you know, the fight over um, class waivers in employment agreements, um, the fight over, you know, the voting case today in Ohio, the fight over public sector unions, those aren't Trump specific, um, right? You know, those any Republican president would have pushed or, you know, or any Republican Justice Department would have defended 
the positions in those yeah, cases. Yeah, I would say these, but, these are all long these are all long term Federalist Society type projects. That's right, and that's not and that's not to defend them. It's just to say that I don't see that I don't see those as being unique right. products of the moment, other than because you have the Trump DOJ reversing Obama's DOJ, and you've got uh, Neil Gorsuch instead of a Merrick Garland casting the decisive fifth vote. But right. you know the the travel ban is different in both degree and kind. Because it really is a case about just how much the court can get away with pretending like business is, is normal, like business as usual. And, you know, I think that's been true from the outset. I think that's part of why the court has been only too happy to put off deciding the travel ban for as long as possible. And that moment's coming. And I think the question is not just what does the court say, but how is it perceived publicly, you know, if and when they hand out a decision? The, the only thing I would quibble with, Steve, is I, I do think you're right that that is the case that raises this moment of Trump. But but the... Redistricting cases are the other is, are the other is the other set of cases that raises a crisis of this particular moment, right? Having to do right. with technology and That's data right. and everything else. So I, the others, I think, are long term projects which could have happened earlier, could have happened later, depend on you know control of the White House and, and Supreme Court nominations, etc. But this this redistricting is is you know it's it, it, like the original one ver- one person one vote cases are, are extremely controversial because they kind of in a way they define. Uh, they define a, a, an important aspect of the Supreme Court itself. Uh, oh, no, of course. I, mean, listen, I, I, spent, I spent more time than I should have in my con law class last fall trying to convince my students that Gill versus Whitford was the most important Supreme Court case in a generation. Yes. Um, and, and I still believe that even if it gets dumped on you know, standing grounds. I just, you know, that case I think was also going to come. I mean, that, you know, if Hillary had won, Gill versus Whitford would still be in the Supreme Court right now. You would just have a more aggressive DOJ defense of the decision below. Um, and, and and had you know had it been Merrick Garland instead of Neil Gorsuch, there would well, still right. be a real problem here. To, yep. You know, it, it's still very difficult to know what to do. Like even right. if you aren't ideologically committed, it's a it's a really thorny legal problem that is I mean, kind listen, of constitutional this, I mean, I mean, in the Supreme Court. At the risk of reminding everyone, right? I mean, Merrick Garland's not a liberal. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, it's not just that. I, I, I think there's more than just kind of liberal conservative going on here. There's a, it, it's a real. Like it's even non-ideologically, the case is really, really difficult. Yep. Um, and this is why. So one thing I wanted to bring up a little bit earlier in terms of like thinking about how to get the, you know, if you think there's a, a set of problems in the building uh, or if uh, or, or whether they're thinking about these things. I mean, to me, it was somewhat telling that that Breyer raised, you know, why don't we consult? Why don't we just punt these cases, bring them back next term, get them all together and talk about all the possible standards one might use. It, almost mm-hmm. like a legislative he- – he was almost uh, you know, uh, talking about having almost a legislative hearing into the kind of different kinds of rules that the Supreme Court could use uh, to, re- to review these politically gerrymandered maps. Um, and, and that's I, – I, I don't know. It, it, I think it's sensible um, rather than proceeding – case by case with all the particular issues. Is it really sensible? I would have thought, I mean, I, I think that would have been sensible in a world where, you know, Veith against Jabilier hadn't been decided like 10 or 15 years ago. This is not a new problem, right? No, it's, it's not. But, the, but I think the question... It's a new Christian, crisis. I, the, the question that Christian's raising, and Joe, I think the, the response is, I don't even know if it's a new crisis, Christian. I, I, think it's, I think it's an aggressive version of a crisis that's been brewing for years. I mean, that's, I, that's I, I true. live in... Yeah. I mean, I live in a district and, you know, Austin's a good example. I mean, Austin is a city of nearly a million people that is split between five different congressional districts so that, you know, Austin has no political power within its own state, of which it's the capital. Um, and, and you know, I think I, I think the, 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 the reason why the timing matters now is just because, you know, the, the political science and the analytics have developed to a point where, you know, we're certainly – 
it's easier to tell a story to the court today about a judicially administrable standard for severe partisan gerrymanders than it was in 2004 when Vieth was decided, 2006 when LULAC was decided. And the question, I think there are two problems here. One, you know, is that enough for Justice Kennedy? And two, you know, if the next seat on the court is going to be filled by President Trump, is there any reason to think that if the court puts this off until that happens, you know, the next justice is going to be any more sympathetic to these claims than Kennedy has been? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, you know, on the flip side, if you look at sort of what's left from the March calendar, you know, going back to tea leaf reading, I mean, there are only two cases that haven't been decided. There's NIFLA versus Becerra, which is the super messy California abortion protest case. And there's Benesek, the Maryland partisan gerrymandering case. And the only three justices without opinions from March are Thomas Breyer and Sotomayor. Um, so, you know, mm. it wouldn't shock me at all if Thomas has the abortion protest case and Breyer has Benesek. And, you know, the question is whether that means Breyer in Benesek is going to, you know, issue a monumental generational opinion or whether he's going to punt. Well, his his proposed scheme that I think he outlined in Gill against Whitford, right, where you have these steps, basically a bunch of safe harbors, right, in each step. Uh, you know, yep. if it's uh, independent districting commission, then we don't review it at all. And then you go to the next step and then you go to the next. Like that seemed to me like if you were just going to be pragmatic about it and if you thought we were at the stage in, um, in, in, in data collection where uh, either – political parties choose the voters or the courts choose the voters. And, and at that, you know, once you're in that position, you might be more, com- you know, might be more comfortable with the courts doing it. Um, then maybe you'll be attracted. So I don't know. I, I think it's possible, but. <sighs> and there's a, te- there's a case that raises the, the big data questions uh, and the, the questions about when differences of degree become differences in kind. Um, and that, that doesn't have this sort of overtly uh, partisan overtone, um, in, in Carpenter, right? The South yeah. Tower. Yep. I uh, thought you were going to go there because it, it's funny how Microsoft became a nothing burger as well, right? But that was not necessarily because of anything the court did. Yeah, right. Yeah, although although I think although I think the grant. I mean, I think folks understood on the Hill that once the court granted certain Microsoft, they really had to get the Cloud Act through. Right. Um, you know, Carpenter's a good example. I mean, Carpenter, I think, is a good example of the court at its best, right? I mean, Carpenter. You know, when it comes down to any day now, if I had to guess is going to be, you know, a chief justice special where, as in Riley versus California in 2015, you know, this is, he says, cell site location information actually is really personal. um, And there is an expectation of privacy um, in at least historical aggregation of cell site location information. And we'll save all the hard questions about what that means for another case. (laughs) Yeah, just for the listeners, again, if you don't know, this is this is the case asking whether the government without a warrant can get information about about your location from, you know, when your phone pings various towers. Now, Riley was unanimous, right? Riley was unanimous, but Riley had this great footnote. I think it was footnote one where the chief says, you know, of course, this case, this opinion is only about the search incident to arrest doctrine. Riley is the case where um, the question was. Um, under the search incident to arrest doctrine, police officers can usually search your whole person when they arrest you to make sure you have no contraband or dangerous stuff on you. If that, if you have a cell phone on you, does that mean that they can also search the contents of your cell phone? Um, and Chief Justice Roberts for unanimous court says no, and drops a footnote says, this is only about the search incident to arrest doctrine. We're not saying anything about expectations of privacy and digital information in any other context. <laughs> well, um, that's, that's totally sensible, though, right? Because it's totally. just... Totally. But, but I yeah. wonder, um, you know, it, so... so 
the fact that it was the reason I asked about whether it was unanimous is because I didn't recall Justice Alito writing anything. Nope. One can imagine his f- feeling in Carpenter uh, that there really isn't the sort of problem there was in Riley. Um, so I think I would be surprised if Carpenter were unanimous. You know what? I'm sorry. I, this is, I'm getting everything wrong today. Alito did write separately in Riley, but he concurred in the judgment. Ah, um, okay. I didn't recall him writing at all. Yeah, um, neither did I. But, but, but the beauty of the internet is I can correct my, my, all of my errors on the fly. This is amazing. Um, so I, I think, Our crack I mean, I think staff like, over here did, didn't detect that. I, I think Riley is going to be – I mean, listen, I don't think – I'm sorry. I don't think Carpenter is going to be unanimous. I mean, I think you're going to have – There's a chance the result will be unanimous, but, you know, I think you'll get a weird opinion from Gorsuch going off on the property rights theory. Um, You know, you might get Alito again on sort of, you know, all the circumstances taken in the aggregate. You might get the lefties saying something more aggressive. But, you know, Carpenter, I think, is, is a good example of a part of Supreme Court doctrine that just for whatever reason doesn't have the same partisan valence. Um, that some of the other stuff does. And so you get these, you know, fascinating, remarkable and rich opinions that whatever their merits, you know, don't just sort of break down on who appointed the justice who wrote it. It's interesting because in Carpenter, you do, I mean, you do kind of get this like el- more elite level um, breaking down along a certain mm-hmm. kind of elite partisanship because, you know, th- that case is a lot about like our the perception of how consumers live within markets. Like are these really – you know the idea that you're like you have a contract with your cell phone provider and therefore you don't have an expectation of, that you're you know all that is it, from the consumer's perspective you know they're they they are captives to a world of a bunch of forces that they don't have real control over and don't always work how they like right totally. and and that that kind of differing you know whether you take the point of view of a real consumer or whether you take the formal view of the consumer within markets with equally powerful other people like that controls a lot of i think how your at least your intuitions and hunches about that case if not the actual doctrinal settling point yeah although i mean of course i mean you know at the risk of at the risk of causing trouble if we're going to talk about sort of a real and honest assessment of how these kinds of contractual relationships go we're gonna have to talk about epic again hmm. <laughs> and and just how how completely indifferent and willfully oblivious the court was to the nature of most employment contracts yeah, and this just seems, you know, it, it doesn't Although seem sustainable. Although in, in the rental car case, they seemed fairly pragmatic, right? More right. realistic, yeah. No, um, no because, they're, because their Fourth Amendment jurisprudence is suffused with pragmatism and always has been um, because it's almost, it's all a creature of doctrine, right? As opposed to contexts where they really have these pre-existing, you know, ideological or methodological commitments that don't allow for those kinds of pragmatic calculations. Yeah, all right, I, so are we going to talk yeah. about today's cases at all or not? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, the, you don't I, think so? I, no, I mean, I, I I don't know that we really have time, you know, and this has been a great conversation. It has been a great conversation. And, uh, but well, I don't know, Steve, what do you, so there are two things that in the emails before we, you know, we we did do some prep, which involved sending like four emails back and forth. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, there were two things. One was the Husted case, right? Um, you see what I did there, Joe, just for you. <laughs> just for you uh it's too used. it's too muffled by these earphones so okay. i don't i don't really know what you're doing okay. well okay um you, you, i hear i see your hands moving around we'll roll back the tape and you can hear it but um uh, and the other was this uh this guidance that sessions was supposed to come out with today i don't know whether that's happened steve and, and this i haven't, I, I haven't yeah. seen it hit the wires yet um and this is uh on it, it, the issue i think is whether 
um, fear of private violence can uh, can undergird an asylum claim. And I think the way this normally comes up is that, um, so for example, a woman who arrives uh, uh, at our borders who, who is fleeing to, uh, serious domestic abuse and makes a claim of asylum to escape that abuse, but, but then usually generalizing that into insufficient protection against that abuse in her home country. Right. And, and that has counted uh, heretofore, I think, as a valid asylum claim if it, if it all checks out. But Sessions, we suspect, I don't know, you, you know more about this than I do, Steve, as to whether he is definitely going to give guidance, basically ordering immigration judges to... Um, uh, to, uh, to, to uh, rule that that is not a ground for asylum. Is that right? So he announced this morning that, he had a, that, he, that there's a major change coming, and the only relevant um, issue that he has sort of taken under advisement in this respect was this issue. So the assumption is that this is what's coming. You know, the exact contours of the decision remain, remain to be seen. I mean, the, the question is when the attorney general defines the term, you know, violence for purposes of the relevant asylum statutes, um, Presumably, whatever he does is going to be challenged in court. But until and unless that happens, you know, his determination is binding on immigration judges because they all work for him. Um, And I think, you know, part of why it struck me is not just because this is a big question to begin with. But if you look at the crisis at the border right now and these, you know, horrifying stories about families being separated, not just those who are crossing surreptitiously, but those who are actually presenting themselves at ports of entry and with applying asylum for claims. asylum, right. um, yeah. which is exactly what they're supposed to do legally. Right. Um, so it just makes me very nervous that, you know, the, the, the most important, I mean, for all the headlines about Trump and Canada and, and whatever, um, you know, I actually think the most important thing that's happening in this country right now on the public policy level is, ha- is happening on the southern border. And, you know, if Sessions comes out and narrows the, the category of, you know, justifiable grounds for seeking asylum, it's going to get worse. Well, um, I, I because, wanted to be sure we raise yeah. this because you know so much. You know so much about it, but I also think, oftentimes, people in a society don't recognize moral catastrophe that happening among them until yep. after the fact when the story is told. And and I absolutely agree with you. These stories, in some, um, and what's actually happening to real people in detention centers who are not only being separated but being kept in inhumane conditions, um, uh, um, uh, kept away from lawyers, um, kept there for long periods of time, um, uh, under, you know, sometimes facetious grounds. And it is an absolute moral catastrophe. And, and I feel really impotent. Like I'm not an immigration lawyer. I would, I would love to help in some way. Um, but I I think, you know, it's, it's, you, you can't necessarily say, and maybe we will find that there is a kind of official criminality going on. But it does seem that there are outrages to human rights occurring right now on our I mean, there, I mean there, are multiple, there are multiple reports of individual CBP officers who are telling people in detention that they don't take orders from the Supreme Court. They only listen to their superiors. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a story this morning that um, in one facility they've been lying to parents and telling them that they're just taking the kids off to bathe them. And then not bringing them back. Yeah, is um, that story true? I want to stop you because I want to make sure. Yeah, I saw that on Twitter, and yeah. of course, it has this you know un- very unsettling um, resonance with yeah. um, with the with the Nazis and the Final Solution. And so I've seen I've seen it, I've seen it reported in I think one of the local papers. I haven't seen any of the national media pick it up yet. But you know, I I mean, I think it says everything about the about what's going on that it strikes me as deeply plausible that that's happening. I mean, the. You know, and there was a the suicide of the father. There was the who was suicide separated. of the father. Yeah. I mean, I, the amount of so so the, I, I, there are so many different problems here. I mean, first there is such a you know 
concerted effort to create to to, for, to plant misinformation about this that like these are only folks who are crossing surreptitiously and who have crossed multiple times before that's not true um you know these are folks who are not legally entitled to enter the united states that's not true if they have viable asylum claims that's right, just not absolutely. how the law is set up um you know you have the president repeatedly saying on twitter this is all because of a democratic bill um that's insanely untrue <laughs> yeah um so, you know, I, there's, and who's there's, pushing out and who's pushing out MS 13 narratives. Right. Like, and, and, you know, from the very first days, they wanted to start publishing, a, uh, some, um, some continuing right. newsletter crimes of committed by crimes, which, yep. which had this horrible resonance yep. with, so, with so the just, crimes committed by Jews under the Nazis. Right. So, I mean, I mean, there's, listen, there's so many, I mean, guys in, in, in New Mexico, one of the facilities was giving the mothers yellow wristbands. Um, like, how does it not occur to you that yellow is not the color you use for this? Um, unless you just don't know your history. But, you know, so, so I just, I, I have so, I have so many layers of feeling powerless, but like the, what I find stunning here is the complete lack of interest from Congress. I mean, this, you know, immigration has, the, the whole reason why we, immigration law in the United States is a mess is because it has not been a strictly partisan issue historically. Um, and Congress has just, you know, for whatever reason now, you know, gone away and said this is not our problem. Even as there's this effort to discharge, um, you know, the Dream Act or at least some version of it from, you know, from committee to force Paul Ryan to bring it to a vote. So I just I, I don't know what to do other than to try to keep folks, you know, paying attention to this. There was um, there are a couple of lawsuits pending. I think one was argued last Friday to a district judge here in Texas. This is going to get worse before it gets better. But I just, mm-hmm. you know, the the cruelty of it is what the, the I find cruelty. is so deeply yeah. like, and and the and the and the pointless cruelty of it. Like we're being cruel just because we can, not because we need to be. Well, it's not it's not politically pointless. Um, it, it's being done for very specific um, n- n- anti pointless reasons, right? It, it, there is yeah. an there is an electorate to which this stuff appeals, but that may not but, be the only reason they're doing it. Well, well but so, true, but but so th- so so you know we had but I mean it, this weekend I mean we this weekend right both of Arizona's senators you know Arizona's a border state took to Twitter to talk about how this is not their party and how you know most Americans don't support what the president's doing and you yet know did nothing right get off Twitter and do something yeah I mean I don't mean to I don't mean to criticize Senator McCain I mean I think you know his personal situation I don't I don't know what he's physically capable of but, Jeff but for Flake. Jeff Flake to whine yeah. on Twitter about this is to me the most embarrassing you know you are a powerful United States senator um, you and Bob Corker between you could change everything tomorrow if you start caucusing with the Democrats I think it's serious enough where you should where you know if I, I think what morality requires is to grind the Senate to a halt until yeah. we get to the you know until we can figure out what's happening you know to, yeah. to use a phrase but i actually think demand, that, you know, demand a hearing we're, we're at a point where um you know we, we look back and we and we um on uh, the the attempts to memorialize the uh, the, the um detention camps for the japanese during world war ii right and um and to find these places and i actually think these immigration detention camps will have that will forever be associated with a great sense of shame assuming yep. we get through all this assuming yep. that we get through this right um you know the, the, the stories will come out about what we did there and that we ignored it and this will be to our great shame certainly the greatest shame of my lifetime I let think. us i want to bring us way back to uh, something in the much more immediate legal term which is but this is immediate okay but go ahead. yeah that's uh, the whole thing okay go immediate ahead. legal all right all right um you guys so are so cute 
So Steve <laughs> mentioned, well, he doesn't listen at all, <laughs> right? Um, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, oh, my gosh. Steve mentioned. He sounds uh, just like my wife. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, you just, yeah, I just. <laughs> and you're and you are why I don't feel as if I need a husband. Um, so you mentioned Steve the idea that the attorney general uh, would be promulgating this interpretation of violence yep. and uh, stating that private violence wouldn't qualify uh, in an asylum context, yep. um, and that that can get that a challenge to that interpretation of his. Uh, can get before a court. Um, uh, I assume that there is some uh, canonical form of deference to which his interpretation will be entitled. Uh, like Chevron? Is it Chevron? <laughs> yeah. Not, okay. if you're, not if you're Neil Gorsuch. Well, so that's a thing, right? So, 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 I mean, right, to sort of tie 37 different threads together, you know, <laughs> if, 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 the, if somehow this specific issue gets to the Supreme Court, you know, here is your perfect vehicle for getting rid of Chevron deference because... You know, Gorsuch has already explained why he doesn't think it's appropriate in the immigration context. Um, and I got to confess, guys, I'm not uh, I, I'm not super you know worked up about Chevron deference as a general proposition. I agree with him in the immigration context because of the consequences. Right. Um, you know, this I mean, so I, part of what I find so exasperating is that I have a deep and abiding sense that when these issues are properly litigated, the government's going to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to, say, the travel ban where I'm not nearly as, as confident. And if that's the case, then it is just so ridiculous that they're doing this anyway. Well, um, let's, so, so let's, yeah. let's then ask ourselves the question. Oh, it's just out, by the way. I just got an email with the, the oh, attorney wow. general's thing. And is it what we thought? The applicant must show that her home government is unwilling or unable to protect her. What now? So how does that differ from what we have now? Um, the the second part, right? The unwilling or unable to protect. So so the the. The uh, here we go. The mere fact that a country may have problems effectively policing certain crimes or that certain populations are more likely to be victims of crime cannot establish an asylum claim. Hmm. So you can't, so you have to show that you personally, right. Um, an applicant seeking to establish persecution based on violent conduct of a private actor must show more than the government's difficulty controlling private behavior. The applicant must show that the government condone the private actions or demonstrate an inability to protect the victims. What, what, is it, what does it mean to demonstrate an inability? Right, I because the, the, the fact that people aren't being protected, one might have thought, what is quite a demonstration of an inability? Right. I mean, I, I get that. Like the very fact of the problem. I get that maybe you have to show some kind of systemic evidence rather than individual evidence. Um, but that's, yeah, I mean, this is. All right. I, I, I want to do a. I want to do something um, before we go because we're not going to be able to sort of drill down into all the particulars. I think we keep talking until we figure all this out. Okay. <laughs> um, instead of that, um, uh, I think uh, – so, so what, what I wanted to try to begin to get a, a, a feel for is the line of argument that would suggest that the attorney general's interpretation, um, if it does get some deference, Chevron, Skidmore, whatever – Right. Let's stick with Chevron. Um, that if it does get some level of deference, that that nevertheless it's uh, it's obvious in some important way that he's incorrect. So so we so so you know under Chevron we talked about it many times on the show before, right? This is the doctrine where if an agency interprets a rule 
and, and or or makes a rule based on some statutory text and it involves an ambiguity in the statute that you know rather than the court interpreting on that that statute on its own and asking well did the agency do the thing that we interpreted the statute to require instead we look and ask whether there first was an ambiguity right is there room for people to uh, to, right. to interpret here, and then and, secondly, and if, is the agency's interpretation reasonable? So those are the two steps. And you're you're asking here, Joe, um, would we even get to step two? Right. You might look at the statute. Well, I, I guess there's step zero, right? Maybe well, maybe um, yeah. maybe not all of immigration law, but but maybe there are within immigration law questions that would f- get with this major issues exception to Chevron, a la King against Burwell. That was invented in King um, but, against Burwell, But put right. that to the side uh, and assume we're going to use Chevron. And then you could say, OK, well, at step one um, – if there's no ambiguity, if the answer is clear, we've got to do what it says, right? Right. Um, so, Steve, is there a quick way? Maybe the, maybe the answer to this is no. And if the answer is no, you know, you'll tell me. But but is there some quick way to get a handle on um, on what it is about this whole chain of thought uh, on the attorney general's part um, that suggests this is just not the way to think about the issue? So that you in your when you're briefing the Chevron step one question, there's sort of here's the big point you make right out of the gate to show he's just he's just wrong about this. I mean, I think, guys, I think it depends on what you think asylum is. Um, You know, if you think I mean, so the problem is, is that I think this is a context where the immigration law is by tradition quite deliberately deferential to the executive branch on the theory that the executive branch is, in fact, in a better position to make these kinds of on-the-ground determinations um, about, you know, what kinds of categories of things do and don't count. And so with regard to asylum, you know, honestly, I'm not sure that on a pure Chevron analysis this would actually fail, even though there are lots of reasons to think that asylum, you know, I mean, if you think about a country that is dominated by gang violence or by, I mean, think about like drug cartels in Colombia, if not today, then, you know, FARC um, or MS-13 in some Central American countries. You know, folks are genuinely fleeing those countries because of violence. They don't care that it's not the government. Um, and I think the question is going to be, you know, how how reasonable is it for the attorney general to put the burden on these folks who have nothing but the shirts on their backs to show that the government they're fleeing could have and didn't right do enough to stop the private violence from which they're fleeing. And there, there, there are going to be a bunch of these people who do have a credible fear that if they're returned, yep. they will be killed. Right. And, and and further, some people will be right yep. if this were put in place. So right. I don't understand how you get up in the morning and decide this is how you're going to spend your time. Right. Like like why? What? Why? I I don't think it really I think you can be anti-immigrant with voters. Right. And, and you can talk about building border walls and you can. But but how does this particular how many people come in um, under domestic violence asylum claims? Is this. Is this a serious loophole? I think it represents, you know, this is a Stephen Miller style commitment, I think, to a certain well, ethnic vision feel, in the United States. I don't States. feel this way and I don't feel any of these things, so I'm on shaky ground But uh, to speculate. But um, w- one very, very uh, faint sense in which uh, today's decision in Houston actually it, – it, is a is slightly resonant with the question you just posed is the following right so uh justice alito's majority opinion starts with the assertion ab- about um you know 
boy, there's a big percentage of the voter rolls that are inaccurate. And so the real concern that he's framing this as is there's a bunch of bad voter rolls. Yeah. And that and that and from that being a principal concern, a bunch of things follow, right? Yeah. Uh, and Justice Sotomayor's secondary dissent, secondary only in the fact that she calls Justice Breyer's dissent the principal dissent. So in Justice Sotomayor's dissent, she says, look, <laughs> there's a bunch of people who have the right to vote who aren't getting to vote. And so she's framing it from the other point of view, right? It's, yeah. not, it's not the fact that there's the voter rolls are, are inaccurate to some degree, and Justice Alito portrays it to be a, a, a significant degree, right? Um, but rather, there's a bunch of people who should be voting because they're entitled to vote and eligible to vote when they choose to vote, and we're harming them in that way, right? So on this, similarly, right, if, you, if your frame is, look, there's a lot of people who are trying to enter the United States who are lying mm-hmm. about a lot of things, uh, why they're there, how they got there, what they want to do now that they're here, et cetera, et cetera. So if that's your sort of – if that's your view, your basic frame, right, um, I think a lot of things follow from that. I, I, uh, and I, yeah, I think if you yeah. think a lot of people are here sincerely because they're in danger, because they're seeking a better life for themselves and their families in a way that all of us can relate to and sympathize with, right, these are very different frames. And so – and a lot of things follow from believing either one of those two very, very basic predicates, right? And my sense of the attorney general and the administration is they are definitely in camp number one, right? They believe – apparently, that a lot of people who are trying to enter the United States uh, at the southern border are liars, f- fundamentally and, f- and profoundly. But they also believe that MS-13 is a very dangerous foreign force, which is leaked a little bit into the United States, but which is very dangerous everywhere where it exists, right? So they do believe that there are these dangers from all of, all of the countries that they wish to keep people out of. Yes. Uh, keep people from entering from. And, and that is an awkward thing uh, to hold in your mind, both those things. It of is course, very it awkward, does, I think. It, it does invite a difference between private and public, right, which is uh, the very thing the attorney general is, is suggesting in this new document. And so, yeah, there are some complications, right? And the fact that you might believe both those things may also be racially inflected. Um, because we are talking about the southern border, blah, 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 right? Uh, people are familiar with all this, so I don't need to belabor the point. Um, but I think, I think all we have in Austin, though, is, is some sort of keyboard that just clacks occasionally. <laughs> See, things are happening. Things are happening in real time. Steve is responding to those things. He, yeah, don't I guess bo- he's don't... already off writing a new cert petition somewhere. <laughs> I'm really not. This is oh, just, okay. I just, I'm just, I, I just, I, I don't even know what to say anymore. I mean, I just, I don't, you know. <sighs> I had th- I had thought that we were better than this. Right. And 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 you know, it's not about, you know, I, I just I had thought we were better than this. And and you know, for all of the horrible things that we've seen in the last, you know, 17 months, this is like the the epitomization of, you know, a country where the way you win elections is by finding the angriest voters and telling them who they should be most angry at. Right. Uh, you win, a, you know, again, it's like. Yeah, for some definition of the word they win. They by a very, you know, it, <laughs> but what's depressing about it is that they, it's depressing you get any voters with this message, right? It, but it's particularly depressing that you get a, an electoral college's worth of voters, right? I mean, that, that's, 
you know, that's not an insubstantial sum, even if it's not a majority. But um, it, but you also have people who are in favor of this, you know, you have this, and you would have thought for kind of the worst authoritarian, um, you know, brutish policies that, of course, any society is going to have 15%, something like that, who are easily brought along with this sort of thing. The fact that it is in the high 30s, yeah. that's to me what's depressing because that means it's not just – the, it's not just people who are damaged in some way, right? It is I don't people know that, that you know depressing. and love. It's very worrying. And I don't and, – and Steve, I take I, – I, I hear you. At the same time, one of the things that, that our current era has challenged me about is um, I, I feel it, like it's super important to say like this is all us, so when we say, you know, we're better than this, well, this is us. Yeah. So so I guess, no, we're actually not better than this Well, um, but he said, we, we, because us, it captures a lot, right? Us covers a lot of territory. We covers a lot of territory. Steve um, said he thought we were better than this. And that's like something that even, your, even you yourself, like we can be disappointed in ourselves as individuals. You know, I thought that I would be able to get this done. I thought that I would be able to be a better father, a better husband, you know, all these kind of self. And and this is just a societal level, you know, um, uh, I'm not trying to be harsh on Steve. I'm trying to, I'm trying to describe the fact that like there, there are moments when I look at um, the president and, and the things that, and the people who surround him and the, and the behavior um, and, um, I'm repelled by it, and I feel like it's profoundly unrelatable. But there are other moments where I look at it and I say, but it's exactly this, in the sense in which it's repellent and disgusting to me that I have to also realize, but he's us. Like, he's a manifestation well, of us well, as a group. Let, let, me, let me put it a different way. Let's see if you agree with this. So so I had thought— you know, And that it, means he's me. I had thought in the 90s and 2000s that, that, the, that the major political disagreement um, or a major set of political dis- disagreements was between, you know, I have a certain view of morality and of uh, what's important and other people have a different view of what's important. And I thought one of the major differences or one of the things that I disagreed with, with I thought the major block of, 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 of uh, 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 on the other side was that, you know, maybe they were like had an overly rigid kind of morality that had lost touch with the lived lives of a bunch of people with whom they weren't familiar, right? And that it was kind of this unfamiliarity which bred a certain kind of application of an overly rigid form of morality. Um, But Trump comes in and that other block now seems to have no problem with um, paying hush money to a porn star to keep them from learning that he had sex with his porn star while uh, his wife was home nursing their baby, right? Uh, That um, this kind of cruelty against individual immigrants, which is, you know, undeniable, this, uh, a, a whole set of, of moral calamities, mm-hmm. right, that I would have thought that this, that this, that this, there would be no disagreement over this, right, that, that the, um, that, that what I thought was an overly rigid and particularized form of morality would nonetheless find the immorality of a lot of these policies, maybe not all of them, right, you know, uh, um, but, but, at least and, and you this. might even think they would find it easier to conclude that it was immoral, right, not harder, I mean, the, the idea that there are uh, that, that there's a group of religious conservatives who are cheering Trump on, despite this hush money, despite buddying up with uh, Vladimir Putin. You know, for for kids who grew up in the '80s, this is like unimaginable, right? Like right, there would right. be the hardcore conservatives <laughs> who are who are buddying up to the former uh, KGB guy, right? So all of this is that's the I don't know uh, that's the sense in, I think in which 
Um, yeah. This is like this is that's how I didn't think this is who we. I didn't think our fracture lines were these fracture lines. And the thing right? is, I mean, and 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 you know, I mean. Um, there's a piece on Lawfare a couple weeks ago where someone who's been pretty defensive of the administration said that what folks are missing um, is that, you know, there's really a big a big debate about executive power back of almost all of these big policy differences over what the Trump administration is doing and just how broadly or narrowly you construe the unitary executive. And my response to that is, come the F on, right? <laughs> this is not a fight about Morrison versus Olson. This is a fight right. about basic human decency. Well, that's I, I agree because I've seen that's one kind of, you know, meta debate that I've been involved with and seen on, on Twitter that, well, this is, you know, had it not been for this precedent, this wouldn't have happened. And we need – basically we need rules. We need neutral rules which will apply in all situations. Right. Had, Obama, right? had the Obama administration not stopped defending DOMA, right. then the Trump administration right. wouldn't be justified in, you know, trying to take down the ACA. And I just don't think it's possible to have a – you know, to, to create a society that I think is morally worthy of, of what, who we want to be that doesn't take account of substance. Like yep. a, a system which is take account of what of substance, right? So if you think of kind of our secondary rules and meta principles as establishing, you know, what Scott Shapiro calls an economy of trust, right? That you're basically devolving substantive responsibility in different ways. Like I don't think you can make a system which which brings out our best under presidents like Obama and George H. W. Bush and Ronald Reagan, and uh, you know, but that also handles Trump. Right? Trump is sui generis, and there isn't a single economy of trust which is going to help us out of this kind of crisis if we insist that there always be one. And and it's, that's the, you know, that's the anti-anti-Trump point, right? That, you know, that um, you, you can't look at what he's doing differently. Um, that it, you have to apply like once. Anyway, I, I'm, uh, I'm tired. Yeah. I, I'm, I feel beaten down. Because okay. I, 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 I don't want to say anything which is too, uh, you know, I mean, hmm. I'm angry about it. And so I'm, I, I feel, you know, so, so I'm, I mean, Christian, stuff. here's the yeah. problem. I'm angry about it. And I'm angry about the fact that only people who are perceived as being critics of the president are angry about it. Right. Like the question is, where where are the folks who were with the president on everything else who just think this is not a way we should be behaving as a civilized country? Right. They're certainly not in Congress. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they and they uh, I think it would be uh, awfully helpful um, on several different uh, dimensions uh, for those people, whoever they are, uh, wherever they are, uh, to uh, begin to find their voices um, yep. soon. Yeah. And it's and, and on the immigration stuff in particular. Right. Our immigration policy is a, is layer upon layer of different policies. Right. Different provisions of statutes, different immigrants in different categories detained for different reasons under different conditions right so one way to look at it is well we'll look at this policy and that i think you have to look at the whole thing right the whole thing together is a moral catastrophe and there's no one in congress who is having they're not having hearings on the immigration uh uh, the 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 moral crisis of our immigration system right now and thinking about writing on a clean slate right opening up these detention centers uh, releasing a lot of people who should not be there, and maybe deporting more quickly some people who should who who should be there. But um, th- no one's doing that, right? There, there are no hearings into um, uh, the the brazen the brazen misuse of office uh, for financial gain by mm. Trump and his family members, right? Or how about Scott, how about how about our good friend Scott Pruitt? How does he still have a job? I, th- 
I, I was saying the other day that I think Scott Pruitt, this is uh, um, EPA, um, who is a a walking conflict of interest. Uh, uh, like he, he seems to be like a Turing maybe. test. He's like a conflict Turing test for a constitutional com- democracy, right? He's like I was going to say, yeah. Go ahead. Conflict of interest might be too 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 gentle. Yeah, yeah. He's an orgy of self dealing. Yes. Yeah, and and it's like you know, it's like it's like the universe sent us this guy. Is, is, is that the episode title? <laughs> orgy of self dealing. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> probably not but like you know it's like the universe sent us this guy to say you know is like would your system even tolerate this like and if so, so right yeah right yeah well so this is so 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 again i mean this is why i think this is such a fascinating month to reflect on the trump administration because you know the justices read the news the justices are very well aware that this is not business as usual um i suspect some of the justices are horrified by what's happening at the border even if it doesn't necessarily line up with their political preferences and i think the question is whether in every single case they're going to keep carrying on as if it's business as usual or if they're going to try to find at least one opportunity even subtly to push back and say you know no we're here we're not going anywhere and so you know that's that's why i I think you know for as much as i think it's deeply possible that this that we're going to end up with a you know, a term that really is largely diffused of most of its fireworks. Um, it might be too bad if that's where we end up. Well, okay. So I, I think the justices, as you know, they listen to this show. Totally. Right? Some of the first to download it. Um, <laughs> so let me, let me just say to you guys, you crazy group of people, like I, I, I love you to death. I love all of you, you know. Um, I, yeah, I'm critical from time to time, but don't hold that against me. I'm just a goofy guy, whatever. You, you, you guys are great. Um, Anthony Kennedy... Do not retire. <laughs> Do not retire right now. Um, I, I actually, you know, you get another Trump appointee in there, and it, this gets worse. I think you know there was there's this news that he was thinking about uh, appointing Jan, uh, what Janine Pirro. I don't even know her. I don't, I don't even know who she is. I, mean, <laughs> I know she's a crazy like I, I was. I don't know if she's crazy, but I know that she's on like a crazy cable news thing. I don't know anything about her, but. You know, who knows what we get? Maybe, you know, maybe we get another like Federalist Society approved person who is, a you know, very smart and very able. Brett Kavanaugh. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Someone who, someone who you know, uh, is exactly the kind of person that if the Republicans win the White House, you know, probably should be appointed, right? Um, but maybe not. You know, m- you know, why not Don Jr.? <laughs> so, I mean, listen, I, I've, I've been very critical of this Congress and the Senate in particular – for not exercising its fairly substantial leverage more aggressively to actually punish this administration. I will say I have at least some faith that there are not 51 votes or even 50 votes in the U.S. Senate for Don Jr. or for some other radically you know, right. unqualified nominee. Um, not Harriet because, Myers. Harriet Myers. Right. Is well, the, no, yeah, but Chris, yeah. that's, that's going to be my point. Yeah. Not, because of the, not because of the horrifying patronage and nepotism of it. But because there'd be too much concern that they wouldn't be, you know, able to sort of, you know, they wouldn't be Gorsuch enough. Yeah, maybe. Wouldn't be I mean, listen, I mean, listen, I, The thing I come back to time and again is we both, we all, all three of us have a whole bunch of friends who are Republicans, who are conservative Republicans, who have been very quiet um, over the last couple of months, over the last 15, even as the president has done things they find deeply morally you know, objectionable, reproachable, et cetera, um, and who are only speaking when the latest rounds of judicial nominations come out. 
and are right. deeply praiseworthy of those judicial nominations. And, you know, I, I Which is like literally we were, the easiest thing for Trump to do because well, but, he doesn't but, care but, about it. Yeah. But, but here's the question, right? Doesn't yeah. there have to come a point where there are things more important than getting your judges? And if the answer to that is no, that says something pretty scary about, you know, your priorities. I, I agree. And this is why I'm hesitant. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, beat anybody up. But on the other hand, this craziness, this moral outrage stops the moment a bunch of conservatives yep. who are Republican, because, you know, when you call, when you call your Congress critter, right, your senator or your, your, or your representative, uh, you know, they know who you are. They know whether you've donated you know, they know whether you voted, they have all that information. And if a bunch of people who have donated to do uh, Republicans before call and say, I want hearings on emoluments, I want, you know, um, I want the craziness to stop. I want the free trade. Um, I, I want the, the uh, disputes with our allies to stop. It will stop. Yep. And it won't stop a moment before that. Um, and it certainly won't stop because you're saying, you know, nasty things on Twitter. Right. Uh I, yeah, I agree that it won't stop a moment before that. Um, it, uh, of course, another way to make it stop is for uh, the November election to for, – for people to take the November election as an opportunity to register their, their heartfelt views about what kind of Congress they would like to see going forward uh, if they're dissatisfied – with the one which, we have which, now, which, I mean, will work, I mean, which, which will work for the House. I'm just I don't have faith that that, that you know you have you have to have such a perfect alignment for the Dems to retake the Senate. Yeah, and I wasn't talking in the. I mean, I was really making a broader point about like I I, I would. I mean, obviously, I would like there to be, given that we now not, seem not to have a separation of powers but a separation of parties. I would like there to be uh, one at least one chamber uh, in opposition control. Yep. Um, because the Queens County Caligula, who daily fouls the White House now, is just something that cannot, <laughs> just can't continue uh, in its in its present form. Right. I mean, I think, um, listen, guys, the, the million dollar question is: if the Democrats retake the House and the subpoena power that comes with it, just how much more do we discover? Yeah, yeah. I, I you know, this is like, you know, uh, was it David Leanhard who had a really good piece up on Washington Post? I, I. <laughs> I, I feel like apologizing to our listeners. I, you guys are terrific. Joe, Steve, you're terrific. Um, I feel like I'm, I have such an emotional response to these issues. I don't even know where to start. Um, and, and so I don't know how this is, you know. Well, we've, uh, so today has been um, a, a good conversation among friends. Okay. Um, it's, it's been pretty calm. Okay. Um, uh, in the realm of possible conversations. <laughs> um, and so another good thing to do is to to reflect. So okay. let's stop conversing. Okay. Start reflecting um, and uh, and continue to try to do just as good as we can as we muddle through. Here, here. I, and, and this is like, you know, at some point in the future, this could be resistance radio, which is broadcast on shortwave radio over, <laughs> you know, burning oil drums. And uh, we'll have to go... Pick up Steve somewhere. Okay. Some kind of van out in the wilderness somewhere, broadcasting. Okay. That, uh, <laughs> Trying to back away from that. <laughs> that's um, how it feels. Ugh, not really. I mean, I'm being a fussy, you know, but right. ugh, ugh, I'm not helping. Steve, well, this you're, Steve you're amazing. Thank this you for joining our, us. This isn't our area of expertise, right? Where we can add the most value is uh, to conversation, is to try to, to to try to use the registers where we have some. You're a big fan of saying law isn't hard, right. um, and I think that's there's many senses in which that's true. Mm -hmm. um, but but it is particular 
it might not be hard, but it is specific. Mm-hmm. It is particular. And I think that we can, we can make some progress and add some value at least in, in, in trying to have conversations in that register along the lines that interest us and that we care about, obviously. Which we'll continue to do. You've got some right. guests lined up too. And, and, and Steve obviously has a tremendous amount of, of expertise, which is specific in specific areas, but right. you know, I, I, w- I would say an unusual number of specific areas. Yeah. Which we have benefited from. Absolutely. Fake it when I make it. Fake it till you make it. That's my motto, as you guys know. <laughs> That's absolutely not your motto. That is absolutely <laughs> false. <laughs> but Well, thanks, Steve. Yeah, thank Guys, you. always a pleasure. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I hope I haven't embarrassed you, Steve. No. <sighs> you just got, you, you got to hit stop. What? Oh, you want me to hit stop? Yeah, I think you should. I think we're done. Okay. Okay, is there anything else, Joe? (laughs) All right, Steve, thanks a bunch.